I would encourage some of you to come to the first service. Uh, we're finding uh, it's difficult to find places to park your cars and park your carcasses. Uh, we are running out of chairs and space. And uh, if you are up and about early on Sunday morning, we would encourage you to come. There are some choice seats in the uh, 8.30 service. There are more parking places. And uh, what, what else? 9 o'clock. What did I say? 8.30. I get here at 8.30. That's fine. That's right. That's right. Why should you sleep in when I have to get up? <laughs> Turn with me, please, to the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I would like to talk to you this morning about ministry, what it means, and how to make it meaningful. And you're probably thinking, at this point, that lets me out. Uh, I don't wear the collar. I've not taken vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. I haven't joined any holy orders. This uh, sermon is apropos of nothing. As far as I'm, I'm concerned, this is an opportunity for me to catch up on my sleep. As I told the women Wednesday night, pastors, preachers are the only people that talk in other people's sleep. And uh, it may well be that this is an opportunity for you to catch up on your sleep. But please don't do so because you think this particular passage is irrelevant for you. Because... All of us who call ourselves Christians are called to be ministers. That's the name of the game. Our Lord is the example. Jesus was not a clergyman. He was a layman. Preaching was not his profession. He was not paid to preach. And as a matter of fact, preaching wasn't a profession back then. Jesus was a carpenter. He didn't come from the uh, clerical tribe. The uh, Levites came from the tribe of Levi. They were the clergy of that day. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. He was a layman. And yet he set the pace for us in terms of ministry. He said, I have not come to be ministered to, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. I have a uh, uh, the prayer of St. Francis Assisi uh, taped into the front of my Bible, and it may, at least it is for me, one of the best statements of ministry I have ever read. He prays, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Now that's ministry, and all of us are called to it. But the question is, how can we minister successfully? None of us want to waste our time doing things that have no effect upon others. We don't want to fail in ministry. We want to help others. We want to be sure that our efforts are successful. I have a good friend who fancies himself a handyman around the house. 
He's always trying to serve his wife. He tried to fix the drip in the shower the other day. She turned on the faucet and a jet of water hit her right in the chest. Then he set out to fix her oven and uh, he found an extraneous wire that didn't seem to belong. So he clipped it, discovered later when her roast incinerated that it was the thermostat. (laughs) But his heart is in the right place. How can we minister successfully? That's the question. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, You know, brothers, our visit to you was not a failure. Oh, that that were true of us, that our visits with our spouses produced godly results, that our talks with our children didn't disintegrate into arguments, that our conversations with our daughters, uh, daughter-in-law or our son-in-law or our in-laws produced righteous results, and yet sometimes we, uh, we just make things worse. How can our visits with others be uh, successful? Paul says, though we had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. The reason we fail in ministry is because we have a strong opponent, the evil one. I'm convinced every time we set out to do something good, every time we set out to help someone, every time we set out to minister and serve and be of help, We're going to be opposed. We're going to be thwarted. Satan's activity is the best kept secret in the universe. He skulks around behind the scenes. We're not even aware. And, you know, that's his strategy to keep us totally unaware of the spiritual warfare that's going on behind the scenes. Now, what happened to Paul was this. Let me, let me uh, share with you a little background. Paul went into Philippi with uh, his friend Silas and Luke, who seems to have been accompanying them at this point, and Timothy, his young friend. They went looking for a synagogue. That was always where they began their ministry. They could not find a synagogue in Philippi. Philippi was full of redneck Romans. There was a strong anti-Semitic spirit there. They had a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment. And so there were very few Jewish men in town. There must have been fewer than ten men because there was no minion. And uh, the women were the ones who met. There were some Jewish women that were apparently married to Roman soldiers or Roman officials or Roman businessmen in the city of Philippi. And they gathered on a regular basis down by the river Gingetus in order to uh, pray for one another and encourage and support one another. And Paul found them and he preached the gospel in a wealthy merchant Uh, A woman by the name of Lydia invited them to her home. She opened her heart to Christ and opened her home to the church. And the church flourished there and things were going well. Until one day Paul was walking through the marketplace and there was a young woman who was following uh, following him, a soothsayer. One of the pythons from Delphi. And and, uh, she was a slave that uh, brought in a great deal of income to those who owned her. Paul uh, expelled the demon and exercised their source of income, and, and uh, these men got upset. They put together a lynch mob, dragged Paul and Silas before the magistrates. Paul was uh, beaten and battered and thrown into prison, and uh, the, it was illegal, totally illegal. Paul was a Roman citizen, and Roman citizens were protected from degrading forms of punishment. They, they beat him with sticks. 
and then throw him in, uh, in prison. That's what he describes as being shamefully treated in Philippi. And you know the rest of the story. Paul and Silas were sitting in the prison singing, and uh, their concert brought the house down. The, uh, there was an earthquake, and the prison fell, and, and uh, the jailer became a believer, and there was a turn for the better. And, uh, but Paul was asked to leave town. The Roman officials came with their hats in their hands, apologizing for treating him so wretchedly, asked him to leave, begged him to leave, and so Paul left. Paul describes that as great opposition. And behind it was the fine hand of the evil one who tried to drive them out of Philippi, who did drive them out of Thessalonica. Later, he, he says, uh, we, we wanted to come to you in Thessalonica and minister to you, but uh, Satan hindered us in what way? The magistrates refused to let him come back. That's what you're going to discover. That's what I discover. Whenever we set out to do something right, when we decide we're going to get our marriage back together, we're going to sit down and talk to our spouses about what we can do in order to make our relationship better, the whole thing begins to unravel. We sit down to talk to our children, and it ends up in an argument, and uh, nothing worthwhile is, is accomplished. Who's behind that? Well, it's, it's the evil one. It's the uh, great uh, opposer. Now, uh, Paul says, despite the opposition, we were very brave. We uh, dared, as the NIV puts it, to tell you this gospel in spite of strong opposition. We were very bold, the NASB says. You say, well, that was Paul. Paul is macho, strong, tough, aggressive. He could handle anything. But if you know anything about Paul, you know that wasn't true. Paul says of himself that he ministered out of fear and trembling. And when he wrote to the Colossians, he described the fightings without, the fears within. Paul was not by nature a brave man, but he learned courage from God. Courage for the Lord came from three sources, which he specifies for us as pure motives in verses 3 through 6. A certain manner in which he ministered. And the message which he delivered, verses 10 through 12, that's the argument which we'll follow this morning. Verse 3, 4, now the 4 here explains why he was bold, why he did not capitulate to the opposition, why he did not fail in his ministry. 4, the appeal we make does not spring from error or impurity. Nor are we trying to deceive you, but on the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trained to please men, but God who tests our heart. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up our greed. God is our witness. We are not looking for praise from men nor from you or anyone else. There are a number of improper motives that Paul delineates for us. Error, impurity, deception, flattery, greed, and the quest for, for praise. Paul said, we didn't come to you in error. We didn't distort the truth as the bakers did who distorted the truth and taught a prosperity doctrine in order to line their own pockets. They told us. Over and over again, that God wants us to be filthy rich. 
You trust God and he'll put you in clover. But it now appears that they wanted God to put them in clover. And their prosperity theology was nothing more than a thinly veiled guise for their own greed. Or the Bhagwan over in Oregon who taught freedom, but whose freedom was nothing more than a cover-up for his licentiousness. Or, to bring the matter a little closer to home, to me and to you, there are those men who distort the truth of the headship and leadership of husbands in the home and make it a matter of male domination. They use the scriptural teaching on headship in order to get their own way, to buy their own toys, to get permission to use uh, their leisure time for themselves rather than to minister to their their wives. Paul said, we didn't do that. We don't distort the truth. We don't change the truth in order to feather our own nest and line our own pockets. Secondly, Paul says, we didn't, there was no impurity. The word really means dirt. It's the fundamental meaning of the word. We weren't dirty old men. Remember Artie Johnson and uh, the old Laugh-In series, the dirt, you know, sort of archetypical dirty old man. The problem is dirty old men don't look like dirty old men. Very often, their dirt is disguised by what looks like sincere motives. There was a man here in town not too long ago who used to gather his secretaries in the morning, and they would hold hands, and they would pray, and then he proceeded to seduce three of them. His praying was nothing more than a, a way of praying on them. Paul says, we're not dirty old men, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God. You know, we never used flattery. Flattery is uh, the use of insincere compliments. I was sitting in a restaurant here recently in town, and a man came up and began to tell me what a great guy I was. And I knew something was wrong, because I know I'm not a great guy. And uh, he went on and on and on and on, finally slipped me his business card. Then I realized why he was telling me I'm such a great guy. That's flattery. It's it's the use of compliments, the insincere use of compliments in order to use people and to get something for ourselves. And then there's greed. Nor did we put on a mask for greed, use our ministry to make money. A friend of mine sent me a poem recently that was written by a businessman in Houston, Texas, uh, about the uh, so-called prosperity doctrine. Let me read it to you. You know, God, I've been thinking, and I hope that I'm not wrong. I think I got it figured out how we can get along. There are certain things you got to have and things that I need, too. So I got a proposition to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm reading in the paper here that things ain't, things ain't going great. The dollar's down, the yen is up, and some of us can't wait to get the next edition of the journal or the post to see which market overseas last night has fallen most. Now, certain friends have told me you got troubles with your game, with Jimmy and with Tammy and some others I won't name. And the things that I am hearing and the word all over town is that your inco- your overhead is up while your income's coming down. I don't mean no disrespect. I hope I don't sound brash. But with the praise and glory, I think you could use some cash. So I got this little acreage in the Gulf of Mexico. 
I'm sure there's oil there somewhere, but just where, I do not know. So here's what you can do for me within your sovereign will. Send a vision. Send a sign. Show me where to drill. (laughs) Then when the oil comes gushing in, are you ready for a laugh? Some might offer 10%. I'll cut you in for half. But wait, it just occurred to me, this deal will be a mess. Where should I send your money? I don't have your home address. So I'll just keep your share, dear Lord, and it will be just fine. Until sweet Jesus needs it, Lord, I'll just pretend it's mine. That's using ministry as a mask for greed. Paul says, God is our witness. God knows our heart that wasn't true of us. Now, motives are strange things. I long ago learned to distrust my motives. I do not know what my motives are. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then he goes on to say, I, God, know the heart. The only conclusion you can come to is that only God knows the heart. We don't know our own hearts. I don't know what my motives are. I can assume that they're generally bad, but... I don't know. I can't be sure. All I can do is bring those motives up to the light of day and say, Lord, you must examine them. You must test them. You must screen them. You must scan through them. And if my motives are improper, you must show it to me. The word that Paul uses for being approved by God is a word that's found, I think I've commented on this word before, on the bottom of many, uh, you find these little vases, uh, some of them intact in, in, the, in the ancient, in the near, uh, Far East, or Middle East rather, and uh, across the bottom of the uh, pot will be inscribed dakimas, which is the noun form of this verb, approved. They would, the potter would make the vase and put it in the furnace, it would crack, and it would be discarded. If it withstood the test, then it would be inscribed on the bottom with what corresponds to our good housekeeping seal of approval, dakimas, approved. Tested and approved. That's the word that Paul uses. Paul says, I simply lay my motives before the Lord. I ask him to, to screen them, to test them, to purify them. Test them with a view to approval is the idea. Paul says, as best I know, that's my motivation. I simply want God... To look at my heart, he sees it. God is the one who witnesses. He knows what I'm like. I want to live my life out to please him. The reason he wants his motives pure is because he wants to please the Lord. And the only way you can come to want to please the Lord is to know that he loves you very, very much. When you know someone loves you, you want to please him. So that's the first element in ministry that makes it meaningful, proper motives, pure motives. The second is courtesy in our manner. Purity in our motives, courtesy in our manner. Not only do we not want to manipulate people, we must not dominate them. Verse 7, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. But we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. Did you see the cover on the bullet? That's a picture that is worth a thousand words. We could have been a burden to you as apostles, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. 
We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had the same authority that Jesus had. When he spoke, he spoke with the authority of Jesus and the Old Testament prophets. He was not to be trifled with. Also, it was very clear that he had the right to expect them to support him in his ministry. But he didn't insist on that right. He worked night and day, as he puts it. By trade, he was a leather worker. He made uh, tents out of leather skins. And at night, Paul would... Uh, during the day and, and, and at night, Paul would work on his craft sewing together these uh, skins in order to make the coverings for the Bedouin tents of that day. And, and then he would literally have to burn the midnight oil at night. He would uh, have his little uh, olive oil lamp and uh, he, would, uh, he would study into the wee hours of the morning, pouring over his Old Testament scrolls to be ready to teach the scriptures to the saints there in in Thessalonica, Paul says, I could have insisted that you support me. Had that right. But because Paul had been slandered in Philippi and in Thessalonica, and people were saying, you're just in this for the money, Paul. He didn't insist upon that right. He worked to support himself. And also, Paul says, I could have demanded that you obey. I could have commanded you to do so. Paul says, I didn't. I was, I was gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. This word is translated gentle here. It's only used twice in the New Testament. The only other place is in 2 Timothy 2.14, where Paul says to Timothy, The servant of God must not strive, must not be argumentative, but be gentle with everyone. Patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose the gospel. If, he says, perhaps God will grant repentance to those that have been captured by Satan to do his will. The point that Paul is making is that we need to address the word of God to people who have been enslaved by Satan. They are victims of the enemy. They've been duped. They need to hear the truth. But they'll only be delivered if that truth is delivered with courtesy, with gentleness. Paul addresses that word to fathers. He says, don't. Don't be harsh. Actually, uses the anonym. Don't be harsh. Don't be harsh with your children. Don't speak to them in a harsh way. Husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. Don't use that cross tone of voice. Be gentle. As as a mother is gentle with her child. I was in a doctor's office the other day, and there was a mother with a toddler, and the toddler must have been sick. She was very restless and unhappy, and and uh, she would cradle the child and. Then the little girl would get on the floor, and she'd run around a little bit, and she was just learning to walk, and she'd fall down. And I noticed her mother didn't go over and stomp her into the carpet when she fell down. You know, she'd pick her up and, and love her up, and she was very gentle, talked to her very kindly. That's the sort of thing we expect in terms of a mother-child relationship. And Paul says that, that's the way we ought to deal with one another. And we have to say some hard words to people. We have to be tough, but always gentle, always gentle. So, not only must we have purity in our, uh, in our motives, but we must have courtesy in our manner. And then finally, in terms of our message, there must be integrity 
in our message. Verse 10, you are witnesses. By the way, did you notice how many times Paul alludes to their first-hand knowledge of his life among them? Verse uh, 1, you know. Verse 2, you know. Verse 5, you know. Verse 9, surely you remember. Verse 10, you're witnesses. Verse 11, you know. Uh, you could have vis- visited Thessalonica in that day and taken this book and said, Is Paul on the level? Can we trust him? They'd say, You bet. You bet. We saw him with us. We know what, he's, what he was like. Paul says, You're witnesses, and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with, with each of you as a father deals with his own children. For, you know, in the first, in the second paragraph, it's a mother with her child. Now it's a father with his children. Encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and, and glory. Paul thinks of his message in terms of two elements. He both embodied the truth and he imparted it, like uh, as Chaucer said of his monk in Canterbury Tales. First he wrought, and then he taught. That's where our authority comes from. That's where our credibility comes from. Paul says, we were holy and righteous and blameless among you. Holy means holy gods. W-H-O-L-L-Y, single-mindedly committed to God. Righteous means uh, behaving as a man and woman ought to behave. The, uh, uh, the Jews referred to an evergreen tree in the, Old, in the Old Testament, this figure is used, as a righteous tree, a tree of righteousness, specifically an oak of righteousness in this case because it's a live oak. Because a, a, a live oak always looks like a tree in the wintertime, other deciduous trees drop their leaves. They don't look like a tree, but a live oak always looks like a tree. So it's a righteous tree. It's a, it's a tree that looks like a tree ought to look. And that's what Paul is saying. We ought to look as a, as a man or a woman ought to look. And we know. We know what men and women ought to be. It comes at us through the word. It comes at us through the law that's written in our heart. We know. And Paul says our, our lives were consistent with what we know to be true, we were righteous among you and we're blameless. Not sinless, but blameless. Paul's not talking about perfection here, but the attitude that we have toward holiness, the desire for it, the hunger for righteousness, and the progress toward it. That's what he's talking about, and that's what gives us, that's what gives us authority. Paul wrote to Timothy, who was a young man struggling with his own feelings of inadequacy and wondering where anybody, whether or not anybody would ever take him seriously, Paul said, don't let anyone despise your youth, but be an example of the believer. That's what gives us credibility. And then, not only should we embody the truth, we ought to impart it. We ought to teach people the word of God, which again assumes that we are gaining a knowledge of it. We're spending time in the word. We're growing in our apprehension of of biblical uh, truth, and then we use it to encourage. That's a strong word. It's actually much more, it's much stronger than encourage. It's, it's the word exhort. Sometimes you have to use strong words. Sometimes you have to urge people diligently. Uh, sometimes you have to beg them. Sometimes you have to point out the consequences of, of their wrongdoing, as Proverbs does. As you know, the argument of Proverbs is always sin destroys you. 
And you may have to sit your youngster down and say, if you continue on this course, you're going to trash your life. There's no way you could avoid it. Sometimes we have to be, use hard words. As uh, one of the uh, children in the Narnia tales says, hard words, soft words, but never scold. Sometimes we have to use those hard words. But with them, we have to encourage. We have to comfort. We have to not only, we have to get off their back and on their team and urge and encourage, support. Uh, people by means of of the word. So we have to embody it, have to impart it. That's what we refer to as integrity. Our our lip is consistent with our life. And what is the purpose of it all? And this we must keep in mind. So that you may live lives worthy of God. Why do we try to minister to our spouses? So they will make more money. So they will get off our backs. So we will have life a bit easier. So they will look better in leotards. You know, I, I hear these horror stories of men who actually drag their wives to the scales, plant their wives on the scales, say, you gained a pound. you got to lose it this week. Why? Because they want to look better themselves, you see. But they're not really concerned about what God is concerned about for their wives, as Proverbs puts it, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And uh, is that the purpose that overrides every purpose in our life to help people to grow in their likeness to Christ, to become more and more of a visible representation of the invisible Christ? What do we want for our kids? To do all the things we couldn't do to be the college QB and then go on and play NFL football? Do we want them to go to Harvard or Stanford? Do we try to relive our lives in them? Or do we want them to grow in their likeness to Jesus Christ? That's the question. And that's often where we get lost. We forget the purpose for which every other purpose exists. It's to create living reminders of Jesus Christ. That's what we're after. And that's what we need to ask ourselves when we sit down to talk to our wives, to talk to our husbands, to talk to our children, to talk to our in-laws. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, our visits are to be successful. What does that mean? So that when we walk away from that situation, they are more and more like Jesus Christ. Carol and I used to say to our boys, When they went out the door on dates, don't forget whose son you are. And they knew exactly what we meant. We were not saying, please don't embarrass me. You are the son of a preacher, therefore act like a preacher's son. My goodness, I would never lay that trip on any kid. No, no, no. We wanted them to remember they were sons of God. They were sons of God. And that's what we want. For our kids. That's what we want for our spouses. That's what we want for our friends and neighbors. That they may become more and more like Jesus Christ. They may live lives worthy of God. And this is the way we do it. There must be purity in our motives. There must be courtesy in our manner. And integrity in our message. That's the key that opens the door. I thought all week for an illustration with which to end this sermon. And I... Could not come up with anything until this morning when I walked in and Steve Harrell was standing outside the office 
hanging around the, the uh, reception desk, waiting for somebody to open the door. He didn't have a key to the office. He was standing as close to the door as he could, waiting for someone to walk up with a key. And I had the key. I could open the door and he went in. I just want to say to you, there are people out there that are hanging around the door looking for answers. And we can minister to them. We have the key that opens the door. Let's pray. Will you stand with me, please? Let's bow our heads and our hearts and make this a morning of recommitment to Christ. All of us fail. We are all forgiven. He is the God of another chance. We need to start afresh. Lord, we thank you that we are new creations in Christ. Every day is a new beginning. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, as Jeremiah reminds us. The past has no relevance in terms of our future. It does not bind us. It doesn't need to frustrate us. We don't need to look back with guilt and despise ourselves, nor do we need to look to the future and give way to fear. We can be very bold. We can minister successfully because we have the key. We have the word that speaks truth. We have the spirit who can purify and correct our, our motives. And we have our gracious, loving, gentle Lord Jesus indwelling us. And we can learn from him. Thank you for what we have, those enormous, eternal resources that are ours because we belong to you. Make us into ministers, all of us. Teach us how to serve and give and care, share of our lives and our goods and, 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 our, and the truth that you've imparted to us. And may it be true that all of us will grow up to live lives worthy of God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.